I'm part of one of the focus groups and uh, the passages that we've been looking at in uh, First Peter, certainly in our group, I, I hope that other groups have found the same, have been really, really interesting um, and been fascinating. I hope that you've had a, a blessing from that too, whether it's as part of the focus group or just as a, a series of sermons. And the overall title that we gave it was, was this, Confidence in a Complex World. And I just want to spend a moment or two longer, thinking we've thought about confidence already, but just a moment or two longer thinking about that whole idea of um, confidence. What, is, what does confidence mean to you? And I, I was thinking about that for myself. And uh, I guess for me it's something like this. It's the inner security of knowing that I can deal with whatever comes my way. So that it's something that enables me to deal with the challenges of life. And of course, it, it's easier, isn't it, to be confident in familiar situations, um, because you, you more or less know how, you, you know how you've dealt with that in the past, perhaps, and, and what it feels like. The really tricky thing is when you find something that you've not encountered before in life, and uh, the, the ups and downs of that, and, and whether there is a, that sense of inner um, peace about that as you look out onto stuff that you've never experienced before. Um, but that's, um, I think, what it means for me. It's, it's that inner security of being able to cope even with the unknowns. And in the first couple of uh, passages of, of, of the first Peter, the, the first two series, the first two um, bits of the house group and the first two um, uh, sermons about that, were being confident in the gospel and confident in identity. And really those two are, are, are about the source of our confidence. Where does it come from? What's our confidence in? And the, the first passage is about, it, it, it's in the gospel, it's in that idea that Jesus died for me and he died for you. And that's complete, it's done. There's nothing that I can add to that. And so there is an, a huge confidence in that. And the second one is in my Christian identity, who I am. Who, who am I? Well, it, the, the Christian um, gospel says that the person that you are most truly is the one that you are in Christ Jesus. And that those two things are the source of our confidence. This next one, with the title is Confident in the World, but it means something a bit different because the confident in the world is about the location in which we live out that confidence. It's not about the source of it. The source is in the gospel and it's in our Christian identity. But we live in the world. And so that confidence that we have that comes from the gospel and comes from our identity in Christ needs to be seen in the world. And right through this letter, actually, Peter um, has this idea that we live in this world, but we don't belong to it. We're aliens. Actually, I'll tell you what that makes me think of. It makes me think of men in black. <laughs> you seen that? You know, these people that are pretending to be human beings, and actually they're these sort of worm creatures with these eyes sticking up out the top of their head. Well, you and I are like that. I don't know whether you're a worm or not, but... <laughs> We're aliens living in this world. And actually our, our task, in some senses, 
to, to show our alienness to the world, we're going to be different. We're not going to be the same. We live in the world, but we don't belong in the world because we're strangers in it. And so Peter says in, in verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So we're in the world and the source of our confidence is the gospel and our identity, but we live it out in such a way that the unbelieving world looks at us and says there's something funny about them. It may not be complimentary, but we are to be different. And incidentally, this, this, that verse has a lovely promise in it, and it's this, that the day is coming when God will visit us. And then we'll see that the source of our confidence is justified. Because, of course, that's the, that's the criticism, isn't it? That's the thing that the world throws against us. You know, how can you believe that stuff, for goodness sake? You know, what are you? Two sandwiches short of a picnic? I mean, goodness sake. And yet, when, when God comes to visit us, then we will, we will see that that confidence is justified. So, so what does this, this um, Christian confidence in the world, the living out of that in the world, what does it look like? Well, the first thing is this, abstinence. Here's the verse. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. There's so much in our Christian faith which is joyful and celebratory and lovely. But there are some things in our Christian lives that we are to stay away from, that we are to abstain from. And that is part of our confidence. We choose not to do certain things in the world. Because if we did do them, they would actually corrupt our identity in Christ. They would undermine those things that are, are at the root of our confidence. So we abstain from them. What are they? Well, the, Peter says they are the things that war against your soul. I suppose the usual suspects are money, sex, and power, aren't they? <laughs> and certainly all of those things exert a powerful influence in our lives. None of them actually is in bad in itself, money, sex, and power. I mean, uh, money and power is, can be used to extraordinarily beneficial ways. And, and you and I, we're sexual beings. It's the way God made us. And in its proper place, there's great joy in that. So what we are to abstain from is the misuse of those things, allowing them to become idols, allowing them to become more important than our relationship with God. Because when that happens, it corrodes the source of our confidence. But there are, there are other things, I think, which the misuse of which affects our spiritual lives, and uh, they're, they're rather less obvious than the sex and drugs and rock and roll kind of stuff. Um, among them are jealousy and the right to revenge. I want to say a little bit more about, there's a bit more in this passage about the right to revenge. But as far as jealousy is concerned, I mean, 
I'm sure you know, I, I certainly do, the way that that corrupts, you know, the green-eyed monster. They've got a better job than me. Why is that? You know, they've got better health than me, for goodness sake. They've got a bigger house and a bigger car and a nicer freezer. <laughs> and their handicap's better than mine. I haven't got a handicap. Well, not a golf handicap anyway. <laughs> you know what that's like? And it, 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 it eats away, doesn't it? At our spiritual lives. So, I'll say a bit more about revenge, but there are other things in life to which we are called to abstain. Do not engage in those things that become idols for us. Second thing is, uh, is this, submission. Gosh. Submit yourselves to the Lord, for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. And bear in mind that this is being written not in a, a, you know, a, a, a Western liberal democracy where there's universal suffrage. This is being written to people who are living underneath the Roman Empire, which is brutal in its exercise of power. The Roman Empire, you know, one of the stories about Nero is that he had the Christians that he'd arrested covered in tar, and then he set them up and set light to them as a way of giving illumination to his garden parties. And Peter's saying, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. And he's not alone, actually, in the New Testament in saying that. In Paul's letters, both in Romans and in Ephesians, uh, he says something very similar. This is what he says in Romans. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. And in Ephesians, where Paul is talking about submission of husbands and wives and parents and children and slaves and masters, there is that idea that, that actually our task is not to make trouble, but to be submissive in those circumstances. And they're difficult passages, aren't they? Difficult to really comprehend. How could that be? And I think for me, one of the keys is actually in Ephesians 5, where Paul is talking about that whole area of submission. And, and Hebrews, uh, sorry, um, Ephesians 5.21 introduces that whole section. And he says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another. And I think that's the key for this whole thing, because I think that what it means is that it is to be submission rather than aggression or apathy, which is the ruling principle of our relationships. We're to put others first, in other words. We're to submit our desires to theirs, both within the family of Christ and in the outside world. And that's jolly difficult to do, isn't it? And it's not an easy path that we're called to follow. But I wanted to say something about this idea of revenge too, because in verse, P in verse 20 of this passage, Peter says, if you suffer for doing good and endure it, um, sorry, if you suffer for, yes, for doing good and endure it, that is commendable before God. In other words, if you're treated unfairly and submit to that, that is commendable. And that just flies in the face, doesn't it, of the idea of revenge. I've been thinking quite a lot about forgiveness and revenge recently. Both on a small scale because the Place for Hope case that I'm working with, but also, you know, isn't that what you see 
writ large in Israel and Gaza at the moment? Simply a desire to have revenge because somebody else hurt me. And I know there's no denying that that hurt is real and it, it is, is destructive. But what's the response to that going to be? And I, actually, I came across these lines from W.H. Auden just yesterday. Oops, oops. Um, this is from his poem, the 1st of September 1939. And those of you that know your history will know that that's just before the declaration of the Second World War. And W.H. Auden wrote this. I and the public know what all school children learn. Those to whom evil is done do evil in return. In his book... Um, the Book of Forgiving, Desmond Tutu, from his experience with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, uh, talks about um, forgiveness. And he says, when you're hurt, you have an option. And the option is to choose either a cycle of forgiveness or a cycle of revenge. That's the choice. And if, if you choose the cycle of forgiveness, it means giving up the right to revenge. It, and, and revenge is the idea that I'm going to make you feel how I felt when I was treated unfairly. That's revenge, isn't it? I'm going to make you feel how I felt when you treated me unfairly. And what Desmond Tutu is saying about forgiveness is the cycle of forgiveness is giving that up. Giving up the right to revenge. Now, you know, we had a bit of this discussion in our focus group. <laughs> oh, for goodness sake, you know. Can't do that. That's hopelessly idealistic, isn't it? Yes. And that's what we're called to. Because if that was able to happen on a, you know, not just a family level or even a community level, but on a national level, wouldn't that have an impact? Giving up the right to make somebody else feel how you felt when you were treated unfairly. That wouldn't that make a difference? Even in the kind of intractable situation that you see in, in Gaza and in Israel. So, submission. Freedom. It's a funny thing, isn't it? But uh, freedom sits alongside abstinence and submission. Peter says this, live as free men, but do not use your freedom to cover up for evil. And once again, Peter is, is saying something about the, the center of um, this grace that we're called to, the life of grace. And for the world to, to, to abstinence and submission means oppression, doesn't it? It means not, you know, being made not to do something. So I'm, I'm not going to do that and I'm going to submit to you. Well, you're not going to feel very happy then, are you? And Peter says, yes, you are. Actually, that's how you find freedom. You find freedom... By, by not doing these things that war against your soul and by will, willing to submit to one another because that's where freedom lies. And that, <laughs> you know, that, that's grace. It makes no sense. 
Except, of course, that's what Jesus did for us. And then there's love. Love, the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honor the king or the emperor, I think it was in the version that Leslie read. And one of the distinctives of the early church was the way that they loved each other. One of the earliest records of that is from the um, Christian theologian from about 180 AD, a man called Tertullian. And he wrote this. He said, see how these Christians love one another and are ready to die for each other. And that has long been the distinctive of the Christian church, the love for each other. And notice that it's for the whole family of faith. You know, it's not just for our particular congregation or our particular denomination. It's for all those other Christians out there who do funny things and uh, behave in ways that you think, oh my goodness me, look at them. It's for them, too. You know, the, the, the last uh, couple of weeks we, we've renewed, well, three weeks, I suppose, um, we've renewed friendships with, with two sets of Christian friends that we haven't seen for a long time. One was um, a couple who live now in Wales. We met first at, at university. And, uh, you know, that's, well... <laughs> 45 years ago, I suppose. And we haven't had an awful lot of contact with them since then. And they live in Cardiff now. And they're involved in a, a little independent Baptist church in a tiny little place outside Cardiff. And the other uh, friends that we renewed contact with is a, a German couple um, who we met when I was at New College. And that's more than 40 years ago, too. And they, are, they now live in Germany. And the guy, Hildebrandt, is a, a pastor in the Evangelische which is the largest uh, Protestant denomination in, in Germany. But the interesting thing about it was we hadn't seen an awful lot of them either over the 40 years in between. And yet, when you get together with them, you know, the conversation just starts again. You, you pick it up from where you were. And I'm sure that part of that is simply to do with the, the relationship, the love that we have for one another in Christ. That love for the, the brotherhood of believers. Well, it's a slightly sexist kind of way of saying it. Family of Christ, that's that. Uh, that sense of, of belonging that we have with one another. And all of this is um, actually predicated on this. It's imitation. Those last verses in that passage that we read say, we do this because this is what Jesus did for us. And perhaps the... Um, foundational requirement of discipleship can be expressed in two words. Yeah, there's the um, verse. To this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So the two words that sum up our discipleship are these, follow me. That's it. And that's what we are called to. Not on our own. It isn't a sort of follow me and I'll watch from the sidelines, it's actually follow me and the Holy Spirit will be present in your life. And what First um, John says about the Holy Spirit is that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And that's what enables these extraordinarily demanding things in the way that our confidence is displayed in the world. Abstinence, submission, freedom, love, and imitation. Follow me. Let us pray.